You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is, I'm going to make a brave attempt to pronounce his name because um, in, in, uh, in your memoir, which I've just been reading, you actually tell this wonderful story of your high school graduation that the announcer pronounced your name wrong. Uh, and, my, um, my, uh, my college graduation, but yeah. Your, ah, your college graduation, yes. And yeah. because your mother was there and you felt it was not fair on her to hear your name pronounced wrong in this situation, yeah. you <laughs> went over and grabbed the mic from him and introduced yourself, which I think was a really ballsy move. Um <laughs> uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try. So I think that my guest name is pronounced Rahman Mongosi. Yes. Yes. Phew. The, okay. The, um, the first name the first name is 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 right on. Um, the last name is is sort of deceptive. The M is silent. Wongosi. Wongosi. Like that. Yes. Ah, Wongosi. Yeah. Rahman Wongosi. Yes. It's a fantastic um, name. I when I see the name, I want to say Rahman because my father's name was Barman, mm-hmm. and it was spelt the same as your name except with a B. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it's Rahman. Yes, it's Arabic, mm-hmm. so it has the uh, the Semitic, uh, you know, uh, I guess guttural sounds in the back of the throat. And um, Rahman, or I'm going to call you Rock. Um, you're you're usually known as Rock, right? <laughs> yeah. Um Is <laughs> is the author of um, Inner Demons: Blazing a Path to Happiness, his memoir, and you are also a motivational speaker and podcast host. And you have a wonderful um, uh, motto. I think you have one of my favorite Twitter bios. You're, you have the motto saying, enthusiastically embrace what is required, which yeah. is just, uh, I think that's absolutely wonderful. Well, thank um, you. I actually, um, I had a, a, a work meeting um, mid last week and they wanted us to offer our favorite quote. And I will say I was very, very proud when I came up with that. And so I offered it and my manager for the rest of the two day meeting she just kept referring back to it. <laughs> so um, I guess it's a hit. Tell me about your name, actually, because it was uh, it's a topic that you go into in a little bit of detail in your in your memoir. Yeah. So my name, um, my father became Muslim, I want to say sometime in the in the late 60s, early 70s. And so in the mid 70s, when I was born um, in the you know, the, the Muslim or, or um, Middle Eastern tradition, you know, they give their children just a ton of names. And so my father, I guess, you know, with the convictions of the newly converted, um, took it to heart and gave me this long series of, of names that was, um, 
it was interesting because I, I, I started off at a, a Muslim school. So from preschool or Islamic school, from preschool up through first grade. So everyone had a name very similar to mine, uh, Razak and Muhammad and Abdul and a lot of different names like that. And it wasn't until I went to public school that I really comprehended just how different my name was. And it was uh, it was a bit difficult growing up um, with the name because no one could pronounce it. And then it, invariably people would ask, what does it mean? And the name depending on the translation means the most compassionate. So you can imagine, you know, a, a young boy growing up in the eighties in a you know somewhat violent environment, uh, having a moniker that says the most compassionate, it's not the easiest thing to, uh, <laughs> to carry around with you. <laughs> um, but I, I grew into it. I grew mm. to appreciate it. Mm. Yeah, it's it. Those are big boots to to fill, isn't it? One of the names of God. It is the first name of God um, in in uh, the Islamic tradition. God has ninety nine names. The very first one is Rahman. Uh, but in the um, in the Muslim tradition, you you tend to name your child Abdul something or other, and Abdul translates into servant or follower. And so traditionally, the name would be Abdul Rahman, and you see that in the news or when they talk about people uh, uh, from that part of the world, and it means servant of the most compassionate. Well, my father took the servant part out and just named me the most compassionate. Um, my last name, and uh, my last name is Swahili, uh, you know, from Africa, which translates roughly to leader. So my name means the most compassionate leader. Wow, what an inspiring, what a wonderful, inspiring name. Again, it's a lot to carry. <laughs> I think in some traditions it's said that there are 101 names of God uh, in Islam. I believe, um, if I remember, it's like we know 99 of them here on earth, and then you find out, well, the hundredth and the last one when you make it to paradise. Ah, that explains it, because um, it's thought that that comes from Zoroastrianism. Uh, mm -hmm. There are 101 names in, of Ahura Mazda and Zoroastrianism. And there's a list that you can find, of, uh, actually, of all of, of, all of them in, uh, in various languages. The first one is the Master Craftsman and Creator of Creators. It's also my um, Farohar, which is the Zoroastrian pendant I wear. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's a kind of guardian angel uh, symbol. And... Um, the angel's wings have 101 feathers for for the uh, 101 names of God. So just a just a little strange connection there. Well, it's all the neighborhood, right? I mean, yep, some yep. of these these these, cult, these uh, cultural um, whatever you would call them have been intermingled over the the millennia. Yeah, here we are. Uh, tell me a little bit about. Can you give us a rundown of of your life journey, because it's quite extraordinary. You begin the you begin your memoir living in Oakland. Actually, I want to just read the uh, beginning, okay. um, although it may sound really strange because I'm not American or a man. Um, but <laughs> but you begin with this. Uh, these are the opening sentences. I sometimes wonder what would have become of me if I'd killed Otis O'Neill. Would it matter that I was just a child? Would the abuse I'd endured at his hands be enough to settle my debt to society? 
or would I only be viewed as an angry boy who'd killed his stepfather? Perhaps the world would assume what I believed at that time, that my sins were the natural culmination of a young life that wasn't worth anything to begin with. So it's really an extraordinary, um, you begin uh, in Oakland with your mother and stepfather, and you have a very difficult relationship with your mother as you're growing up at that time. And you find it quite hard to to fit in as a young man, and you have a lot of anger. And uh-huh. then you end in this, uh, you end living in the Upper East Side, very prosperous and successful, um, in a happy relationship, and the father of a of a daughter. You go through quite a quite a, a journey. Do you want to give us a little? Tell us the story of your <laughs> tell us the story of your life to begin with. Give us a little rundown summary. So, um, so obviously, uh, life started before my stepfather. Um, Sort of leading up the prequel to that, uh, my parents divorced when I was around three years old, four years old, and I always felt, I always felt uncomfortable in my, in my body, in my existence, um, and I, I, I don't know where that exactly came from. I don't know if it was the environment, um, you know, Oakland in the in the late seventies and and eighties, or was it something? sort of innate within me, but I always felt very uncomfortable. Um, and life life didn't really seem to be enjoyable. Uh, so fast forward, my stepfather, um, he was abusive. And I don't necessarily like to use that word because uh, it has a certain connotation and, you know, people think of um, victimhood and, and a lot of different things. And my perspective of it isn't like that at all. This was just something that happened uh, and something that I had to deal with. And that is how I felt about life in general, that I, I'm putting to, I'm put into this series of situations um, that I didn't create, but it's my responsibility to, to deal with. And um, he pushed me, you know, he just pushed me to a, a, a point and I was perhaps five or six um, when, you know, when I, you know, sort of settled on the idea that, you know, it's just going to be easier to get rid of this guy. Um, and I was, I was dead serious, you know, don't mind the pun. Um, but through circumstances, he and my mother split very, uh, shortly after I formed this thought and I go on, you know, with the rest of my life. But I guess the anger, that I had sort of innate within me, he only added fuel to that fire. Uh, and I just, I didn't trust my mother. I didn't trust my father because I felt they, they let me down, uh, by putting me in this situation, putting me in this, you know, the situation of living in Oakland at that time. And so I became very, just generally uncomfortable and unhappy with, you know, with the world around me. Um, there were, you know, a series of, of incidents, you know, just growing up, you know, puberty, which was awful. It's awful for everyone. But for me, um, I really just reached a breaking point because I was so unsure of myself. Um, I'm very inquisitive. I was the kid that always had a, a, a million, you know, whys, you know, why has this happened? Why does that happen? Okay, well, what happens next? And a lot of adults found that annoying. Um, so by the time I reached 
you know, uh, my teenage years, I was very unsure of myself. Um, should I be asking these questions? Why am I, where are these questions coming from? Because I, I knew that I was asking questions and looking at the world differently than other people around me. Um, and it's very isolating. And I always felt alone and I found uh, my most peace when I was alone. So I had my first nervous breakdown when I was about 14 years old, made myself very sick. Um, and at that point, I made a conscious decision to change my relationship with the, with the rest of the world. And it was simply, if the rest of the world doesn't care about me, I'm not going to care about the rest of the world. And so I created this protective layer around, you know, the, the softer parts of my, of my personality and character. And that carried me through the next, I mean, let's say 10 years of my life. Yeah. I noticed also in those early stories, there are several moments at which if, if you had been less lucky, <laughs> your life could have gone in a really different and worse direction. Absolutely. Um, I think the the first one we just mentioned, the stepfather. Stepfather, yes. Um, I don't know if you. Yeah, I don't know if you would have actually killed him. It's always impossible to tell with these kinds of hypotheticals. Mm -hmm. um, but there's one moment also when you're in the schoolyard and you get very angry with one of the other boys, mm -hmm. and you're pursuing him. I think with a baseball bat, if I remember correctly. That's chapter two. Yes. Yes. And, but you don't find, you don't, he runs away. You don't manage to catch him. So you're, you're thwarted also there again in, 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 in a violent act, which might have long-term repercussions. Yeah. There were a number of situations. Um, not all of them made the book. And I, I do like the fact that you, you highlighted this, this sense of luck um, because I have been aware that, I've been able to make it through certain situations, not because of anything that I was doing, just circumstances worked out in my favor. There was the situation with um, getting into an argument with, you know, a, a friend over a playground game. And I went to get a bat to really prove my point. Um, there was another time shortly thereafter, I had one of those, uh, a utility knife, one of those Rambo knives. I mean, Rambo was a, you know, every, you know, boy's hero. And I remember showing it to some kid on the bus and we get into this verbal altercation and I pulled the knife out and more words were exchanged. And I was like, listen, I'll throw this at you. And he said, you won't. <laughs> and I threw the <laughs> knife at him. We were on a crowded bus and just by circumstances, the knife landed in the seat right between his legs and stuck there. And he was shocked. Everyone was shocked because they didn't think that I would do it. But I was always very committed to living up to my word. So I calmly, you know, retrieved the knife and got off the bus. And in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, wow, that's kind of lucky. I mean, there are a number of incidents like that that never made the book. And I don't know... Like I said, this this anger, this energy that I've always had, I think growing up in that environment, uh, it was channeled in violent ways because that's that's just what it was. You you had to be committed to a certain amount of violence in order to dissuade anyone from bringing violence to you. 
and I was the, you know, I, I'm the, the, my mother's eldest child, um, on that side of the family in Oakland. Um, I didn't, I was the oldest grandchild, so I didn't have older cousins or brothers or anyone looking out for me. I was literally, or what it felt, I was out in the world on my own. And I wasn't a small, I mean, I wasn't a, a, a large kid. I was a, you know, a small kid. So my protection was if you, if you bring problems to me, I am going to turn it all the way up to a hundred and we'll see if you like how it turns out. I mean, I'm just very, very committed to seeing things, you know, to the end. And if it's violence, well, I was very, very eager to meet violence with violence. Mm, it sounds, it yeah. sounds way more bleak. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I say it in hindsight and it's like, wow, that sounds very bleak and very dark. But, you know, that's what it was. That was that mm. was time. Mm. It was an honor culture that you were immersed in when you were growing up also. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that you said at one point, I think that we have this in common that I also, um, when I was growing up, what saved me, I think from going to the bad was my love of reading, of books, of intellectual pursuits. Um, and you had that also. I think at one point you say, um, this struck me, I felt pressure to choose between a world of academic excellence with children not interested in knowing me and a world where excellence was viewed as abnormal. Being a smart black kid was like being on the loneliest road in the world. Yes. Yes. That was seventh grade. And I found myself, one interesting thing happened when I transitioned from my private school into uh, public school at second grade is that um, in a lot of ways, I was just more advanced than the other, than the other students. So I always ended up in the the upper level reading, you know, uh, reading groups that they segmented the class in or the upper level math groups that they separated the class in. And you, you were aware of the separations that they were creating, but it didn't really become stark until we went to middle school. And now you were just in a completely different class. And it so happens that the classes that I was placed in, I tended to be the only black you know, the young black boy in the class. There may have been a black girl or two, but I tended to be the only black boy in the class. Um, and I'm in class with, you know, white kids and Asian kids and um, all of these different types of kids from more affluent neighborhoods. Um, and they didn't really want anything to do with me. And so I go to in between classes and lunchtime and I'm meeting up with uh, the majority of the, of the, you know, young black boys that were in the, in the class, I mean, or in the school. And they were like, well, who are you? Where have you been? And I'm like, well, I'm in this class. And you immediately, you're just separated from your peer group or what many would consider your natural peer group. I mean, at that, at that time it was young black boys. And so to them, I was, something odd. I wasn't quite like them. Um, there was maybe even a bit of resentment because I was, you know, maybe a little bit smarter or for somehow, for some reason or other placed in, in the more advanced classes. And it's, it wasn't overt. And, um, well, sometimes people would say, Oh, you're smart or, you know, you talk white, you know, I've, I've heard that. And I mean, that, 
is very isolating from 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 that standpoint. But then again, you're in a class with your academic peers and people you're supposed to be creating this network with, and they don't really want anything to do with you. And I don't necessarily blame them because I mean, I <laughs> I just explained my my violent tendencies and so i don't necessarily blame kids coming from you know more you know affluent and uh and stable living environments to have necessarily anything in common with this kid who was known to fly off the handle at the slightest provocation yeah there's a beautiful talking about your kind of troubled personality there's a beautiful moment where you say that you really admired uh one of your teachers and she had you sitting in the desk right in front of hers. <laughs> and you interpreted this as an honor. You thought it was a privilege and an honor that she allowed you to sit so close to her. <laughs> yes, Miss in- Bowling, that was my fifth grade teacher. Um, I actually was uh, speaking with her uh, a couple of months ago. Um, literally, so everyone has that that teacher, that, you know, that teacher that takes a special liking to them or you know, lets them know that, you know, they were smart or, or something or other like that, that bit of encouragement. And this was my fifth grade teacher. Mm-hmm. I was not having a good time in public school. Um, I felt that the teachers, I don't know, my relationship with the teachers, there was something off about it because A, I could do all the work very quickly and, but they just didn't seem to like me no matter how, you know, how well I did. But Miss Bowling, gave me all the freedom and you know in the room to sort of explore my personality and the things that I liked. Uh, she sat me, you know, right next to her in, in the classroom. I thought because she heard of, of my reputation, but in conversations with her, she was like, no, I just liked you the best, um, which made me feel great. Oh, um, but she that's had wonderful. The, yeah, she had this system of where um Within a given week, you needed to do so many of the assigned readings and so many book reports uh, within a certain amount of time. And what she allowed me to do, because I saw her system and I'm like, well, if I need to get through um, the 10th lesson in this reading assignment, well, instead of doing one through 10, why don't I just do number 10? Because the goal is to master the reading assignment or that level of reading. Um, And so I presented this information to her and she's like, Sure, I'll let you do that because that's the goal, not the busy work. Um, if I can do 10, why do I need to bother with number two? Or there was another requirement that we had to do a book report every week, at least 100 pages. Um, and so I realized that it's actually easier to read a book that's 200 pages than it is to read two different books of 100 pages because you know, you're know mm. engrossing the story, different things like that. So. I proposed to her, if I read a book that's 200 pages, can I get credit for two book reports? Because I understood that her goal was, or the goal was to um, advance the student's reading skill. And if I'm demonstrating a higher reading skill, that should give me a free pass to get through all the busy work. And so she was like, sure. And because she allowed me to use my own imagination and to be a partner in my education, I loved her to death. She had my complete loyalty. Anything she asked me to do, I was, you know, I was, I was all for it because she, it, it felt as if she respected me and she respected my perspective of things and I returned it in kind. 
It's um, I'm I'm skipping forward a little bit now to when you mm-hmm. you went to study at Morehouse. Oh, actually, what did you major in? Um, so I started computer science, uh, and very quickly I switched to finance and economics. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, because you know I'm sort of spo- spotting a theme, um, mm-hmm. which is. You were very much a, a loner as a child. I was also, I was extremely, I would say pathologically, I was pathologically introverted as a child um, and adolescent. I mean, I had state-mandated therapist. Uh, mm. People really thought there was something wrong with me. And my escape, like yours, was into books. And it feels as though... What I sense from your story is kind of things pulling you in different directions. There's your personality, your very independent, lonerish personality. Uh-huh. There's the resentments and angers that were swirling around in you that were, which I also felt when I was growing up, but perhaps because I was a girl, I didn't have the testosterone. It wasn't going to go in a direction towards violence. Yeah. And, you know, you had just were living in a different hormonal world. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, your kind of hormonal environment, yeah. and also your environment tugging you in different in different directions. Some of them quite quite counterproductive. And so, first of all, there's the the way in which the uh, black community that you are surrounded by, the kind of expectations there, some of which were counterproductive mm-hmm. or unhelpful, and. Then there was also the way that you were, the way that you felt you didn't fit in when you were nevertheless in the all-white classroom or almost all-white classroom. And I was really struck by that as I was reading the book. So, for example, when you were at Morehouse, um, Uh you say here, um, you're describing your classes. Oh, no, sorry. This is back when you were back in uh, San Francisco. San Francisco State. Yeah. So, so to give it, add a little context. Mm. So even though I was a bit of a loner, I've, I've managed to collect friends. Um, and from my perspective, these were guys that were just cool enough to let me hang out with them. Um, and these, these are guys that I've been friends with at this point for about 30 years now. Um, mm. and when I, since I've, when I've published the book and they read it and we've had some follow-up conversations, my idea of my childhood is completely different from their experience. Um, I thought they were just so cool to let me hang around. They, their telling of it was they liked hanging around me because, I seem to know what was going on. Um, I seem to have um, an idea of how to navigate just all the craziness that was going on, um, and not just necessarily with the environment of, of of Oakland at that time, but just just the 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 instability of growing up. Right, growing up is hard. Living yeah. is, is very very difficult, and <laughs> yeah. to them. I seem like I knew how to navigate through it. And so they, you know, <laughs> they liked hanging out with me. It was, it was weird. No, you go first. No, you go first. Um, but I did not. I went to Morehouse with two of my best friends, guys that I know since I was 12. Um, and we were all roommates. And even though Morehouse is sort of like it's a, it's a jewel in, um, in the black community. Right, it's a center of excellence. Uh, my my 
everyone was very proud of me. My family was very proud because my family, uh, extremely religious, uh, very conservative uh, in a you know personal behavior uh, sort of way. So sort of personal excellence was always uh, was always championed, even though I kind of had my own way of, of going about it. Uh, but I didn't like Morehouse. Um, so Morehouse it, is a traditionally black college. Is that is yeah, that right? It's a historically black college. It's all male. So it's all oh, it's guys. All male. Ah, yeah, okay. it's all guys. Spelman, an all girl school, is you know across the parking lot. Clark, which is a co-ed school, is you know we share uh, a lawn. Um, but I didn't like it. Um, I didn't like it for for a number of reasons. A I was a bit homesick. I was missing my high school sweetheart. Um, and, I, you know, I was missing the comforts that I had at home. And so second, my sophomore year, I was working a job, um, a summer job between uh, freshman and sophomore year, uh, made friends with a guy who knew another guy who had a scholarship to San Francisco State. So I could go to San Francisco State for free instead of my mother paying, what, $15,000 to send me to Morehouse, taking out loans. Hmm. So hmm. I go to San Francisco State, and I'm thinking, okay, now I'm home. So I have all the comforts of home. It's going to be like it was in high school. I have my car. Um, I'll have my girlfriend, and life will be okay. Well, uh, my girlfriend, I had to get her to break up with the guy that she was dating at the time. Uh, this is a long drawn out story. We had our off and on. So, you know, that was mission accomplished, got rid of that guy. Um, but it wasn't so great because she ended up breaking up with me on my birthday because, um, she made, I made her do this thing that she didn't want to do, which was hurt somebody who never did anything wrong to her. Um, so that, was sort of a, a rain on the parade of being home. Uh, San Francisco State was about an hour and a half commute from where I lived, so that wasn't very fun. South San Francisco, it's perpetually overcast and rainy. Um, mm, I know. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, just sort of depression sank in. And then looking again at my my peers, um, and I want to I want to I want to clear something up. Um, so it might sound strange to people to hear that I didn't have any, you know, friends that weren't black, um, especially in, in, in this day and age. It's like, well, are you racist? You know, what's going on? It's like, no, people I think people aren't quite as aware of just how new intermingling of different ethnicities are. I mean, it seems like we're, we've been doing it forever, but that's not the case at all. There are still pockets of, of people that are isolated from other pockets of people. And when you're going about your normal everyday business of going to school or going to your houses of worship, you really, you really began to comprehend that the opportunities to make personal friends with people outside of your ethnic or, or religious group are actually very small. And so Having a natural sort of the way my mind was configured at the time, um, black people were my friends and white people and other people were people that I, I worked with or, or did academics with. Um, and so my what I considered my natural peers, other black kids, they weren't taking the classes that I was interested in, uh, whether they were the technical science classes, um, the business courses, 
you know, the higher math courses, they weren't in those classes. They were taking um, the humanities, the sociology classes, the psychology classes, um, the black literature classes, uh, things that I wasn't interested in. And mm. I think I think one of the things that really caused me to be disinterested in a lot of that stuff is because my father was, you know, he was in the, the, the black power movement of the 60s and the 70s. He was in his teenage years as the Black Panthers were forming. So he was in the epicenter of sort of black empowerment and, and black um, self-reliance. That was what he knew. And so I grew up in what many would consider a very woke family. Um, I knew about black history. I knew about the scientists. I knew that, you know, the culmination of our history wasn't just we were slaves. Um, I knew all of these things. So they, it just sort of faded in the, in the background, being excellent, being smart. It wasn't abnormal or it wasn't trying to um, reach the standard that white people were living or, or, or anything like that. It's, I'm excellent. I know this because why wouldn't I be? Now I need to go out into the world to take what it is that I want. And I didn't mm. see a lot of my I didn't see a lot of my peers um, doing that. They were stuck on this question of who am I? I need to learn my history. I need to learn my history in order to feel better about myself. And I'm not saying anything derogatory about other black people because we all are walking our, our own journey. But that was those were my formative years. I mean, I didn't know anything else. And so they were in, in my mind, they were asking questions that I had answered when I was five years old. So I was interested. My my analysis of the issue was black people didn't we didn't necessarily we needed more money. <laughs> then we needed to figure mm-hmm. out you know, who created yeah. the, you know, the blood transfusion. Who cares yeah. who created blood transfusion? Are you going to be a doctor, you know, in 10 years? <laughs> yeah. That was more, you know, more important. And so, again, I felt isolated and I decided to go back to Morehouse because at Morehouse, there were other people like me studying the hard sciences, studying business, studying these technical things that were going to um, create wealth right now, not worried about what was going on in the past that no one can do anything about anyway. I, uh, you, you put it really succinctly here in this passage, which I'll, I'll just read it. You said, um, so you're describing San Francisco State here, and you said, compounding my discomfort, I was one of less than a handful of black people in my science and business classes. Where I did find a number of black students were in the humanity and social science classes. It seemed as if everyone was studying to be a teacher, social worker, or find some deeper understanding of the African diaspora. Why weren't more of us seeking expertise in the fields that would bring security and wealth to our families and our community at large? Sure, we needed social services and knowledge for our history, but we also needed economics. I thought that was a very astute um, observation. That is where... um People are very confused uh, of my political leanings. Um, you probably see a little bit of, of that on Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the things that I advocate um, are lumped under the banner of being progressive. 
And it's like, okay, sure. If, you know, progressives care about, um, making sure that people have, you know, a high quality education. Sure. I guess that's a progressive quote unquote idea. I don't think that's progressive. I think that's, you know, I don't know. I, I think that's common sense. Um, but self-reliance, um, not asking, not necessarily seeking help as the first option, um, figuring things out on your own, building your, your wealth and taking care of your family. These are all things that I guess people would lump under conservative ideals. I'm like, well, again, this seems like the normal, um, common sense thing to do. You can't help other people if you are in need of help yourself. And so mm-hmm. in, in order to, um, one of the things, and when we start talking about culture, um, this is a, you know, race and culture and ethnicity and what's going on in the black community. A lot of people like to wave their finger at, at, at the black community, um, and use this as props. And particularly when it comes to Jews, there's whatever reason you all, when you start talking about the black community and issues in the black community, um, people want to bring up Jews, whether it's in a derogatory sense of Jews are preying on the black community, which is a falsehood. Um, uh, I'm sure there are individuals who are Jewish who are also preying on the black community, but the Jewish community at large, you can't say that, you know, that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's, you know, racist, right? Um, yeah. You know, it's either that or it's you, you hold up, you know, Jews as a model. Why don't you be more like Jews? When it's like, well, they have a completely different history, a completely different um, way of looking at things based on their experiences. Uh, um, and so, you know, it, it, it becomes this, 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 you know, pull back and forth. But I do think that there are things that other cultures and there are other, let's say, African cultures and Caribbean cultures and even within families here of where, you know, we're going to do for ourselves. We're going to, mm. you know, we're going to educate ourselves because um, that is how you bring honor to yourself. And that's how you honor and show respect to your family. Um, and some would say that's a very conservative idea of educating yourself and training yourself to be excellent. And through your personal excellence, that is a, you're honoring your family, you're contributing back to your community. And if everyone is doing that, your community at, you know, in mass is uplifted because everyone is contributing something, you know, something, you know, valuable. Um, I was going to say that these two, there's always these two um, values and they're not really in conflict with each other so much as each person decides which they which they feel is more important, which they're they're drawn to prioritize. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is looking after the less fortunate. There's the the value of compassion towards mm-hmm. others, and uh, leftists traditionally place that value higher. And then there is also the value of personal responsibility, which you're describing as kind of honoring your community giving back that those two things are both important so it's important to be it's important to have compassion and understanding but to not the ex, the kind of excess of that is to glamorize victimhood to to encourage people to kind of wallow in self-pity to be 
past-oriented rather than future-oriented. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, but, and then the, the excess of the self-reliance thing is to be callous and to lack understanding for why people might be struggling. So uh, it's like those two values, w- one of which is more of a kind of traditionally left-wing value and the other more of a right-wing value. But those two values are both important and an excess in either direction is, is, um, is wrong-headed and always yeah. very tempting. I see people falling down one or the other path all of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm more of a leftist, but I have a great deal of respect for resilience, I would say. I think it's an underrated value. And I think that we do people a disservice when we we need to be cognizant of history. We need to understand the circumstances that people are living within and try to mitigate hardships that they may be facing. Um, but we do them a disservice when we paint them as victims, when we Absolutely. make it seem like they're doomed. I think, I, I think uh, you, you know, you, you touched on this um, and so, so often in our, in, in modern culture, um, things are posed as a binary choice. It's either this or that. You can't, you have to choose one. Uh, when we know just by looking at nature, looking at history, balance. Balance is always the right answer because it's a little bit of this and it's a little bit of that. And it's, you know, finding, you know, finding the right mix to create um, positive externalities. Um, synergy is, is, is a word that we use in the, in the, business, um, in, in the business community. Um, you need to find that mix uh, to create something that's greater than, than the sum of its parts. So yeah, when, when people try to pull you to, you know, one side or, or another side, or you're not on my side, so you must be on that, you know, on the other team. It's like, no, I'm doing this thing over here, trying my best to find balance and to put the right ingredients together to achieve all the goals. I personally want to achieve all the goals. And this is actually how I, um, how I approach work. Uh, when I do my internal consulting at work, I ask people, don't tell me the minimum of, w- of what you want. Tell me everything that you want and we'll work down from there. So out of a hundred percent of everything you want, we can probably get 90, 90% of it. Isn't that great? Isn't that a mm. much better way to go about, um, you know, creating something better than where you are by saying, okay, what's everything that we can do versus what is the, what is the minimum that we can get by with? I think there's also, when we're thinking about things like privilege versus hardship, we're mm-hmm. always looking in a very myopic way at um, psychologists, descri- sociologists describe this as a reference group. You look at people who you think are kind of equivalent to you, similar in some way, and then you say, am I better or worse off than them? Mm-hmm. And when when I look in a wider sense um, you know, I'm one of the kind of top percentage. I'm one of the 1% globally. Yes. You know, not here in Argentina or in the West or among other people with degrees or whatever else it might be. Yes. But globally, I'm in that kind of 1%. And I was really struck, my friend uh, Punita the other day um, 
we were messaging each other, I think, in a group message, and people were talking about what would you do if you became very wealthy? And she said, and she's she's Indian, mm-hmm. um, and she's doing kind of okay, but she earns maybe like a 2% of average salary in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's not a, you know, she's not a wealthy person at all. And she said, I'm wealthy beyond my wildest dreams of when I was a kid, beyond the mm-hmm. wildest dreams that I had when I was a kid, because I can afford to, um, I can feed and look after my three dogs and I can afford to buy buy books whenever I want to. Mm-hmm. That was such, I was so struck by that. This kind of, as soon as you start to take the wider view, you can't help feeling very blessed. Yes. I, I almost, my parents, and again, this sounds bad. My parents were a disappointment to me. Um, and the disappointment came from, I could see that they didn't really know how to manage the world. Um, and that sounds very arrogant, uh, but my parents had me, my mother was 22, my mother, my father was 24, so they were very young. I mean, back in the 70s, that actually seemed normal. Uh, but to me, I felt that they didn't establish a secure enough foundation in order to provide me with the things that I wanted. Again, it all comes back to me. I'm very, very selfish in, in, <laughs> in certain ways. Um, and so I, I, my perspective of the world was there is stuff in the world that I want, so I need to get it. And it wasn't a matter of, okay, am I doing better than, um, you know, the black people that I, that I see every day? That wasn't the measure. Was it the, um, I want to be like the white people that I see on, on TV? No, that wasn't quite the measure e- either. Um, they had success the people that you saw on TV, I wanted the success. I wanted the stuff. I didn't necessarily care about who had it at the time. Um, That was actually irrelevant to me. I was very enamored with anyone who had mastered the system. I'm very systems oriented. Um, As, as I outlined, let's say with my experience with my fifth grade teacher, um, one of the things that you skipped over the fact that, I would say in my late, well, my, throughout my teens, I, you know, I used to steal a lot from stores um, as a mental exercise, trying to just sort of poke and prod at the system. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 I've always had this sort of fascination with how does the system work and how can I make it work for my behalf? that that was always my focus so the ethnicity of of other people who are you know let's say quote unquote winning at the game is irrelevant to me are people winning sure i then have an opportunity to go do that because i always woke up thinking no one was better than me um You know, in in certain ways, um, I mean, if I were if I were a straight white male with my attitude, um, people would. I mean, I'm, it would be quite interesting some of the adjectives that people would use to describe me. Um, but in terms of competition, you know, I am a you know I am a competitor. I like winning, and everything else sort of 
you know, falls to the, to, to the wayside. Now I've, mm. I've smoothed out some of those rough edges or life has smoothed out some of those rough edges for me. <laughs> and so my, my focus is not necessarily for my own, um, personal betterment because I realize that you know, I don't really, to, you know, back to your point, I, I am actually very blessed and I don't need material wealth and gain doesn't provide incrementally any more happiness. Um, mm-hmm. especially if people around you and the people that you care about, um, aren't doing well. Mm, yes. Yes. I, I, I've heard it said that, uh, money is a threshold satisficer, I think is the term. I think, uh, it's Jonathan Haidt who uses this term in the happiness uh-huh. hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Um, i.e., if you don't have enough money, then money is going to be the focus of your anxiety. Um, yes. And, you know, I've been in that situation a lot. Um, if you don't have in, in if if you don't have enough money, then it's uh, money becomes very important. And but as soon as you have enough, and of course, how much is enough depends on what where you're living, what your needs are. Yeah, they, <laughs> they always toss up like that seventy five thousand dollar, eighty thousand um, dollar sort of limit and I'm like yeah that's not enough (laughs) (laughs) well you know it would always be nice to have more I think my earnings currently are kind of getting to around the Mm 20,000 mark Um, and I'm already beginning to feel like phew I can breathe out a little bit Um, even though for most people that would seem very low but it's I think that there, there's certainly a point at which more isn't going to bring you a proportional amount more happiness. Uh, money is more a problem when you don't have it. Yes. It's getting ri- money is more something that plugs a lack. Um, it's rather like eating. There's a, um, well, eating is a little, little different, but if you are Full, if you're already uncomfortably full, being offered more delicious things is not going to increase your happiness. Yes. Um, and I don't you don't get uncomfortably satiated from having plenty of money. Or I'm I'm welcome to try if anybody wants to submit me to this experiment. It gets to the point, I, you know, um, and I, I thought about this um like when I, my daughter was born and how I was going to parent her, because of course my parents didn't get it right. And I just knew that I was going to get it right. Um, (laughs) and there's comedy that ensued after that. Um, but I, I was always to your point, very aware that I, I needed to provide her with not just the basics because, you know, the basics of shelter and food, it's more than that. You needed to provide you need to provide, particularly an American child, in my estimation, a fairly comfortable lifestyle. All the basics, obviously, taken care of, but wants, right? You need to be able to satisfy enough wants uh, because they're looking at you. You're, in, in, in certain ways, your credibility with your children is based on how much comfort you can provide them. Um, how many of the things that you know make them happy? How many of the things that allow them to uh, really grow and explore their own personality um, and to self-actualize? That those are, in my estimation, the basics. However, there is a point where 
if you're providing too many resources and too much comfort, you then begin to soften that edge that you're trying to build in your children because now nothing is is out of their reach. You never have told them no. They've never had to work or stretch, you know, for for anything. Um, and that breeds a a soft edge. And you um more often than not, you you build overindulgence and um, a person who can't handle adversity when it meets them. And so mm-hmm. it's a very, very tricky, it's a very tricky balance uh, between um, pulling your children out of the adversity and some of the, you know, the things that were, were somewhat unpleasant about, you know, our own, you know, upbringing. I know mine in particular, but not going so far as to completely divorce them of some of the great lessons that one learns through adversity and working through problems and uh, being denied uh, the prize at the end of at the end of effort. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think that I um, I had in many ways a very easy time because I was in the UK, so I had didn't have to pay. I didn't have to pay for my education. That was the number one uh, biggest advantage. And you and I are the same age, I gather. Or more or less the same more generation. Yes, we're in the peer, we're peer groups. Yes. Yeah, it was so I funny. was. It's so funny because I've been which looking. Which year you I was born in seventy six. Seventy six. Oh, okay. No, so you are a lot younger than me. Um, yeah, I was born in sixty nine. Yes, but so here's the thing about that, and I've, I've I've been very looking forward to this conversation for a long time, is because you and I grew up in a very very different world. We grew up in the analog. Right. All of mm-hmm. our perspective for how the world works, we had to put a certain amount of input into a process, wait, <laughs> and then you get the reward at the end of it. And that breeds a, a, a certain perspective that's different than the digital one that a lot of what we see millennials, but particularly the, uh, the Gen Z people, my daughter's age, um, their their idea of how things work in context is completely different from ours because all of the answers for them to life have been at their fingertips. I mean, they grew up in a world where the internet is fully formed, right? So you just, you don't even have to type. You just say, hey, Google, just call out in the air. Hey, Google, tell me this. And Google will provide the answers versus you and I had to Go pick up the encyclopedias. Go to the, you know, the, you know, you had to learn the Dewey Decimal System <laughs> to navigate yeah, the library. To, yeah, I had to go and get books out, physical books out of yeah. the library. And yeah. you know, when I was when I was when I was doing my PhD, I had to go to the rare books room, and in the morning you would order your books, and yeah. you had to wait for the librarians to fetch them. So you'd go and have your coffee or whatever, or you'd be waiting for the books to physically arrive. And then you had to sit and work on the books there in the library. And of course, you know, there was no Wi-Fi at that time. There was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. There was no Instagram. Um, There was no way of... um, It was very difficult to be at work and to be wasting time at the same time. I still managed it because I've always had it for that. <laughs> um, but I remember when I was growing up, wasting time by daydreaming, for example, like literally mm-hmm. not doing anything, just sitting, just sitting kind of daydreaming. And 
there wasn't this kind of instant I lived I lived in my head a great deal mm-hmm. and I think part of that was because there was no external thing there was no phone that you carried around with you that provided yes. constant entertainment I'm just reading David Sloan Wilson's book which is called This View of Life and it's um uh David is actually I'm actually going to be interviewing David on Wednesday Okay. And one of the things that he he points out, which I had never thought of, so Gen Z have a much much higher rates of um, poor eyesight mm. uh, in childhood and adolescence. So um, I'm also a glasses wearer, but a high proportion of them wear glasses. Mm. And uh, experiments seem to suggest that there is a correlation between a lot of screen time and less time in nature that you're always looking, you're spending too much time as as you're growing up and your eyes are developing, mm-hmm. um, looking at things that are close to, that mm. are close to or medium length. Yeah, very and, near field, right. Yeah, and and not enough time looking further away. And, and so there is a much higher, much higher rates of myopia. Right, yeah. These are just it's all things that you would never even think of. I just, I can't even imagine. This, this is what the play of words. It's, it's actually kind of funny. Um, just so, being so engrossed in the screens and the technology that myopia, both the literal and the, mm. you know, and the figurative, have seemed to, you know, to have increased, particularly in, in the past 10 years. Well, it's both a myopia, but it's also an extraordinary kind of, you are exposed to, in a sense, a larger mental world. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I remember when I was growing up listening to my uncle bullshitting, um, and I sort of knew that what he was saying couldn't quite be right, but mm-hmm. I had no way of finding out, <laughs> no easy way of finding out. Um, and... And now I now he can't bullshit anymore because my cousins just get out the phone and ask Siri right. to fact check him. Um. <laughs> so, so one of the things very interesting with this conversation and, and well this topic and what we were just talking about in terms of money, very interesting. One of the things that I I used to read encyclopedias, right? We had an encyclopedia, and there were you know the hours of boredom when you didn't really have anything to do. Um, so I would read encyclopedias. Uh, one of the things when it came to money, and we all we've all played that that game. You know, if you had one wish, what would you wish for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or if you had a genie, what would you, your three wishes be? And I, I was always because you, you you hear the stories and you see oh people waste their wishes or you know there's some some hidden trick in the wish. Um, that, you know, is this deeper life lesson. So I took a lot of time to figure out what it is that I wanted. And at first I would say, Hey, I want to, I would wish for a million dollars because, you know, this is, this is when a million dollars was actually a million dollars. Right. Um, but it actually dawned on me that a million dollars would very quickly run out. Right. If all you had was a million dollars, I mean, as soon as you spend it, you're no longer a millionaire. I mean, if you bought a $5 cup of coffee, you're no longer a millionaire. This is, you know. Um, so I was like, no, I don't think money is actually what it is that I want. And so I took my time, took my time, and I settled upon if I could wish for anything, I would just wish to be smarter than everyone else around me. Because if you were smarter than everyone else around you, you could pretty much 
put together any plan or machine or idea that would solve whatever problem that is that you want. If you wanted a, you know, a big house, well, if you were smart enough, you could figure out how to come up with a big house. You never really needed money. And that was always my focus. Mm. So, and so it, 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 it's very strange how it just seems that people have, they've let the enhancement of their own perspective and their own opinions just be subjugated to, well, I can just find the answer right here and just give it to you and keep moving. And there is no work. There is no ownership. It's just, I'm just going to, I'm just going to check the box. I'm just going to press the button. Yeah. I don't know. This is, it's, it's a very, very, very interesting time that we find ourselves in. I think that I, I have this kind of ambivalence about the, the whole digital world because on the one hand it makes it possible to do things from anywhere mm-hmm. and that is incredibly liberating so uh you know i decided that i wanted to live in buenos aires because i wanted to study tango so i came here to buenos aires and i found a way to make a living online from here Um, And, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that would not have been possible. When Mm -hmm. I was growing up, that was not an option. And I still find when I come to visit the States, when I'm at um, at the immigration desk, I still get a lot of a lot of questions because I often come for the maximum time for a 90 day stay. 90 days, right, right. And I can because, you know, all of my work is online. And I still have problems making the immigration official understand that. It's like, don't you have to be in the office? So um, I, I, I work, for, you know, obviously, you know, with the way technology and work is, I work a lot. So right now I'm in Pittsburgh. I live in New York, but I'm uh, here in Pittsburgh with my, my girlfriend uh, at her family reunion. And um, I, I'm able to do that, like you said, because of the Internet and all this technology. And it really enables me to expand the scope of this thing that I, that I do, which is, you know, tear apart systems and rebuild them. This is right. What I do for work. Um, and I went to, I went to Brazil a couple of years ago, uh, flew back on a Tuesday because I had class on Wednesday. And then Thursday I flew to Colombia for the rest of the long weekend, a friend's birthday. And I came back, I think it was like that Monday or Tuesday. And I was at customs and the guy is looking at my passport and he's like, wait a minute, you were in Brazil and then you came back and then you went to Colombia all in the <laughs> same week? And yeah, I was like, crazy. yeah, he was like, they just let you do that? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I was like, and, and, I, and, and it, it was funny. It was in, it's one of those moments of where you become intimately aware of your quote unquote privilege. And I didn't have anything. I didn't know how to respond to that. And I was just like, well, yeah, that's just my life. (laughs) I didn't know how to explain it. And I know that it it probably seemed condescending. I was very sure they were going to take me into a small room (laughs) because and ask me some (laughs) further questions because it does sound preposterous that, you know, you can take two international trips within a week just for pleasure and not really take off work. I almost never take off work. I, I don't even know how to fill out, 
you know, quote unquote vacation timesheets. Um, even though I'm a salary employee, you still need to, you know, take off your, 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 your PTO or, you know, your, your vacation days. I don't even know how to do that because I'm always, I'm always available at work. If there's internet connection, mm-hmm. I'm available. Yeah. I, I, I have that too. And it's only very, very recently that I've actually said no to work because usually b- before my situation as a freelancer was that I was just I never knew where the next work was coming from. So mm-hmm. even if I was already stretched to the limit, if yeah. somebody offered me another job, I would take it always yeah. because maybe next month there won't be any jobs uh, for me. Uh, yeah, I think at one, my- point, at one point I went two months with nothing, <laughs> with no mm. with no work. And that just put the fear of God into me. Mm-hmm. Um well, I saw, I grew up seeing my mother, I'm sorry, I grew up seeing my mother, you know, being a single mother, never taking days off, even mm. if she was sick, never taking days off, because at that time, she was an hourly employee, um, and you needed to clock your hours in order to get the right paycheck in order to pay all the bills. Um, and so I just saw this, this, I don't want to say insane, but this just deep, deep work ethic that I mean, if you don't need to go to the hospital, <laughs> you should probably go to work. Um, and even though I'm, I've surpassed, you know, whatever levels of success that my mother had, that sort of that principle, kind of like you were saying, like you don't know when the next check is going to come. So mm-hmm. you should get the check that's right in front of you. Um, yes. It's also, I mean, I do feel that the problem with a digital thing is that you – you take your world along with you wherever you go. Mm-hmm. And it means that you can go to all of these exciting, wonderful, exotic places. You know, it means that I, I just took off and I lived in India for two years. And I had, um, you know, I didn't know anybody in India at all. Um, I didn't know how I was going to manage it. And it was all fine. But I didn't have to completely upend my life to do it. Um, because I just took my work, my digital work with me. Um, But at the same time, when you're always taking your whole, your work, and then maybe you also have your Twitter and your Facebook and your social media life and all that with you, you can be in another place, but you're not seeing that place. You're just mostly looking at a screen. So it's as if you haven't gone anywhere. And it can... You have to really resist this pool because real life, the real kind of meat world, that is the gold standard. Yeah. And it's very easy to dilute that. Um, yeah. You know, I, was, I, was, I was reading something um, a couple of years ago and they were talking about the dichotomy that we have that we put the political, you know, nomenclature on top of a conservative, progressive, left, right. But what they, what they were, and they were, they were seeing these patterns globally. And what they were, what they were sort of highlighting was that it's not necessarily, um, you know, the, the, the coastal elites of, you know, versus the, the, the center, the heartlands of, you know, say America. This is actually something that is happening around the world that all, like, no matter which city you are in, you're kind of in the same city. There's obviously, 
you know, each, each city. So Paris is always going to, it has a very unique energy and New York has a very unique energy. However, you can eat at, you know, Preda Manger in both Paris and New York, even though that's a London based, you know, uh, you know, lunch, lunch spot, like all the businesses and the restaurants and everything is largely the same. As you're saying, you never leave your Twitter or you never leave your online presence. You take it with you. And so you are actually always in this cosmopolitan environment that is different than what quote unquote average people or quote unquote normal people are living in some of these, um, when you get away from the, the the urban centers and so yeah you do kind of feel this this sameness no matter where it is that you go and i i think we are missing some of the the uniqueness that was probably would be a little bit more um apparent to us if we you know got out of our screens <laughs> i also realized i i spent time in in oroville down in southern India, um, which is a place I'm thinking of going and spending a year there. Mm-hmm. And um, I found it deeply fulfilling, spiritually fulfilling being there. I have some, also some, there are some disadvantages, some big disadvantages, which is what has mm-hmm. kind of kept me hesitating as to whether to do it. To do so this what's the, what, what are the disadvantages? I would say the main one is there are no dateable men. <laughs> I think that's well, that a big is, one for me. Hand me, hand me a handsome Indian chap and, um, and yeah, I will go tomorrow. <laughs> um, but, but I want to, you know, um, the thing about the speaking for your community thing. Yes. I think it's, I've had an exceptionally kind of, um, uh, I had an exceptionally weird childhood experience, so I'm not very typical. But I think it is it 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 becomes very complex for people who are mixed race and who straddle two cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that some people um, have have a very uh, for some people it's kind of an opportunity. It's like they feel like they have both. And they have um, they have kind of ownership of both cultures, and some people feel like they have nothing; <laughs> they kind of don't belong anywhere. And I went from the feeling of not belonging anywhere to the feeling of belonging in both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's interesting when I when I when I was talking to Thomas Chatterton Williams, he said he felt that he had to choose that he had to decide whether he was going to think of himself as black or think of himself as white, which is, which is really odd. Um, well, so it's, what's, what's odd about this is that, you know, I don't have a, a mixed heritage to sort of split my um, identity with. Um, however, I am very, very much an individualist. Like I like myself more than anyone else in the world. Um, mm. Well, maybe my daughter, right? Um, <laughs> you know, your, your children are the only ones to sort of like really break through that. But I'm, I've always been very aware of my individuality and that my needs and my wants and my desires are more important than everyone else's, right? Again, very, very selfish. But as I've, you know, we, we also talked about um, one's responsibility 
to one's community. And when I say community, there is a, an ethnic component. There is the the national component, if you will, um, you know, our, our, our citizenship. And so it's weird because I, I, on one hand, I do understand the sentiment of what the Congresswoman was, was trying to say, but I don't like the connotation and the very overt political, um, I don't know, let's say ultimatum that she was offering. Because personally, I like to see I like to see black people speaking up for themselves, right? It's like whatever opinion you have, please speak up. Because I don't think that there is a one way for black people to think or believe of anything, right? We're mm-hmm. very dynamic and very diverse in the things that we want. Um, and so I do respect the congresswoman in her advocating that people speak up that that you know um black people speak up or hispanics or i mean i would i would lend that to anyone anyone everyone should speak up to advocate for the things that they care about however um this sense of allegiance or following along with the with the crowd and this is where i think that some of, you know, black conservatives who are, you know, who get a lot of the, the, the media attention, I do think they, they have a very strong point in that, you know, um, many people will castigate and sort of try to shame people who don't follow a particular orthodoxy, right? It goes all the way back to the way I spoke growing up and say, oh, well, you talk white. Oh, you're in that smart class. Something's, you know, matter with you. Or when I would go skiing, they were like, well, black people don't ski. And it's like, well, my, my answer to that was, ski? that <laughs> really was one of the things. It's like, oh, black <laughs> people don't ski. But my thing was, well, I'm out skiing. So, so clearly they I'm do. Skiing, yeah. Clearly they do, right? And, and it's always sort of that that juxtaposition of being a you know a black man and 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 speaking on one hand i do speak for the entirety of the black community in the sense that i represent what i would consider um i mean i don't want to say it quite like that i i i consider myself to be an example of what uh, a self-actualized black man can be i do pretty much what i want in life, right? Mm-hmm. My opinion and the things that I value, I go about making them happen in the world. And I want every black man and every black woman and every Hispanic woman and every white person and, you know, or European or whatever. I want people to, 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 to advocate for the community and sort of the traditions and the principles that they value. However, I don't think anyone owes any allegiance because as sort of the counterpoint, what I just said, I don't speak for the entirety of the black community because we all don't know each other. And so I can't make determinations for what, you know, uh, um, black people in Ohio want or black people in Nigeria want, or um, I haven't lived in California in about 15 years. So I can't really speak to what black people from Oakland, California want. Right. So there is sort of this you know, on one hand, you do speak for, I feel responsible to speak for the black community or to represent 
excellence within the black community, but I'm not offering any prescription that um, I know the right way. I think I have the right way and the right answer for a lot of different things, but I'm not dictating anyone follow that. I'm saying, here is my example, follow it or don't. I believe my answers have always been, have always proven themselves to be some of the better answers. Um, and so there is kind of sort of this weird thing when it comes to how much do you owe your community, right? Mm, mm. And which community do you really, you know, do you really um, represent? Because living on the Upper East Side of, of Manhattan and my daughter going to a, a fairly famous school, um, my community, my immediate community is very, very different, right? Um, my immediate community and the people who um, have specific um, input on the things that I value the most, which is my daughter's education, are Jewish families and white families and Asian families and all of these different people that if you were to put us all in the line, we maybe shouldn't be advocating or for the same thing or have, you know, the, the, the same things in common because we, you know, physically don't represent each other or come from historically the same communities. But the communities that we form with our actions and our values, our children's education, that is really one of the, you know, primary networks and primary communities that I'm supportive of because they support me and one of the things that's most important to me which is my child's education. Mm. You have a shared you have a shared goal. And that's yes. what I mean I think that that is a crucial thing for bringing people together is mm-hmm. um having a shared interest or a shared goal. I mean I think that there the community in the sense of an ethnic community is a double-edged sword. So it can feel very comforting because you have a kind of you have no doubt as to whether you're part of the community or not, if the community Mm -hmm. is based on race, because you know, okay, I'm a Parsi or I'm black or whatever, therefore Mm -hmm. I am part of this community. So there's no anxiety about, do I get to, do I get to enter or not? Um, And that can be very comforting and reassuring. And skin color is a very salient thing. It's the, you know, one of the first things you notice when you see a person is the color of Mm the skin. And mm-hmm. so if the person's skin color is similar to yours, I think some at some primitive level, something kicks in where you think that person is like me and therefore they're going to support me and be good to me. And so I should glom together with them. See, I've, I've never had that. I don't really feel I have that either, but I think a lot of people do and it's not in itself do, yeah, bad. Yeah. It's a, sure. sort of a natural in, impulse. Mm-hmm. Because there's safety in numbers and you're looking for your tribe. You're like, who is my group? Right. But at the same time, communities can also be very restrictive. Uh, They can police you. So, for example, you know, my sister lived for many years in a small Scottish Highland town. And Uh the advantage was that everybody knew each other. And so you had this community feeling. So you weren't lonely, you had company. But the disadvantage was that if you picked your nose with the wrong finger, everybody would be talking about it. (laughs) Um, Everybody knew each other's business. And that means that you Mm -hmm. can also, communities can be very censorious. They want you to stick to their rules. And if you don't 
toe the line, then um, then you will be punished. So yes. communities always have this this two two sided thing, um, and so I think some people going back to the black community, which is something I know very little about. So I'm just going to speculate. Um, some okay. people would. Some black people are very comfortable with the whole social justice identity politics thing, mm-hmm. um, and they want to study African American literature and culture and history and things, all of which mm-hmm. are great things to study. And they want to be around other black people, and they want to be kind of championing black issues, etc. And right. they feel very comfortable also with the social justice left, which places a lot of value on that on their identity mm-hmm. and there are other people who find that restrictive and annoying um and who who feel like it it blurs their individuality so i also uh you know i notice a lot of black people and brown people and whatever people of color as they as they call as they rather inaccurately call it that weird giant umbrella term. I have a lot of those people on Twitter who are really angry with the whole social justice left and identity politics because they don't want to be lumped into a group, even if it's in a very positive way, even if it's we're celebrating black people, rah, rah. They're like, fuck off. I'm not black people. I'm myself. Right. And so I think it's partly a matter of temperament. I think so. Because like like I said, I... Growing up in a in a black environment, surrounded with you know by black people, um, it it was sort of that restriction that you're talking about. I felt that acutely because for me, my my, I like to talk about the 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 me in everyone. When everyone you know thinks about themselves, they think I'm me. When you wake up in mm-hmm. the morning, you're like I. You know, another, you know, a narrative of me, I'm doing okay. I'm fine. Um, and it's the rest of the world that then starts to put these layers of supposed, you know, group identity or you belong to this and, and, and that and the other. And so I always chafed against that because let's say my father was a Muslim. And so that was one system of control that I hated. And then my mother was, you know, a Christian Baptist. That was another system of control that I hated. And then um, the quote, this is what black people do versus black people don't do this. Another system of control because Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, I don't know what quote unquote black people are doing or not doing, but I know what I want to do or what I don't want to do. And I, I was always very comfortable um, with sort of going my own way. You also talked about safety. I didn't, I've never felt safe with other people. And so one of the things people wonder why I make friendships or relationships with people of across ethnicities so easily and how I can just intermingle with people. And it's like, because all of y'all are strangers to me, <laughs> like just because <laughs> someone is, is relatively my same complexion, that tells me nothing about them. Humans mm-hmm. are dangerous animals. Yeah. And again, yeah. going back to the fact that I didn't have older brothers or older cousins or anyone sort of looking out for me growing up in what was objectively an extremely violent in, in environment, 
which happened to be mostly black people that I was around, I didn't trust anyone. So black wasn't something that I necessarily trusted, but I didn't trust white people either because it's like, well, the white people that I did see that weren't on TV living this fantastic life, they were cops. They were, again, other control and authority figures. And so as far as I was concerned, everyone, not me, was a potential enemy. That included my mother. That included my father. Everyone had to sort of earn their space in my life. And some family members earned their way out of my life. So it's this very compartmentalized and sort of separate existence that I've, that I've always had. And to, on one hand, I felt very isolated as a child and sort of not a part of anything, as I referenced in my book. But fast forward you know, 30 years later, I actually feel quite at home because I feel unencumbered by a lot of the conversations and the, you know, the push and pull of who do you belong to? Who do you advocate for? I'm always advocating for myself and the things that I believe in and the, the benefits of the things that I advocate for are for people who want to be a part of the team that's doing work. I don't believe in teams but I do like teammates, people who are working in alignment on similar goals, like the parents at my children's at my children's mm, school. Mm, and mm. so the things that I advocate for online, like education and, and different things um, or, you know, helping working people, it is not specifically towards black people or quote unquote pe- you know, persons of color or, or, or what, whatever. It's where are people you know, getting the short end of the stick in this system. Um, well, they're in, you know, Oakland and, and the places that I grew up in. They're in places like Tulsa where, you know, I saw all manner of, of, of you know, poor and, 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 and working class white folks. I'm in Pittsburgh right now, which is, you know, <laughs> one of the things that I, I, you know, my girlfriend and I have been talking about is like people talking about white privilege They've never been to Pittsburgh. They don't know. They haven't been in an environment like this because when you walk around and see all of these, you know, quote unquote white people with their bodies broken from working in the mills, working in the mines, doing all this manual labor because they've been they've been sort of um, brought up in a culture that says you don't have to worry about building your mind. We can just give you this this repetitive task right here. Don't worry about the fact that it's going to break your back. This is what you can do right here. And that's, just, that's you know, really selling them on such a diminished existence. And that's not to turn my nose up at blue collar workers, right? I mean, blue collar is what set the foundation for me to have the life that I have. But at some point, you have to advocate for your children to take the narrative and move it a little bit forward, move it higher, Right. The idea that we would, you know, I think it's criminal to tell, you know, you know, young white men growing up in, in rural areas that the best they, they can look forward to is possibly a job in the coal mines. When throughout history, working in the mines was like a prison sentence, right? Mm. That was the worst job to have. That wasn't a job at all. That was that was a, a place where you sent people when you want to get rid of them. So to set that as a standard that the best you can be is to go break your back in this mine, 
you know, the fact that that's a young white kid growing up in West Virginia, to me, is no different than telling some, you know, some black kid in urban, you know, in urban America that, you know, you might be able to, you know, be a, a, a sports star. You might be able to be a rapper. If not, you, know, you, you might end up in jail or you might, you know, might end up, you know, being a short order cook or, you know, uh, I don't know, loading the truck or working in a warehouse or any of this, you know, this other stuff. So I don't see these things as different, the problems that are going on in the inner city with the problems that are going on in rural America. And so when I look at, at the world, it to me, it would be hypocritical to advocate for the struggles of young black teens in, in some of these areas and not advocate for young white teens dealing with some of the same, even though the details are different, they're dealing with the same sort of you know, uh, low expectations, the big, the soft bigotry of low expectations. Mm. I think um, there's two points that I'd like to add to that. One is that I think privilege is a helpful concept when you're thinking about yourself. So mm-hmm. if I think about myself, I usually use the word blessed instead, but I could say yes. privilege. Yeah. You know, in many ways I'm privileged. Um, I lived in India, so, you know, I'm very conscious of how privileged I am compared to many people in the world. You know, I saw a lot of people homeless, uh, living in really, really impoverished conditions, entire families. And, um, you know, I I have a roof over my head and enough to eat. I'm healthy. I'm able-bodied. I'm a little bit crazy, but I don't have an actual diagnosed <laughs> mental problem. Um, you know, so, I'm, I'm lucky. Yeah, India. Um, yeah, I, India. Indian society. I'm sorry. Indian society, as you know, to to kind of add on to that, was sort of learning about the caste system and you know, untouchables and different things, and and seeing that wait, those aren't the the classic from my mind at the time, black and white. That's something different, which began to open up my mind that, huh, maybe this thing that I'm having a problem with is not necessarily a black and white thing. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a little bit more universal than that. Here, yeah. black and white might be just the proxies that we're using to have this conflict, but it's deeper than that. Yeah, I, I think so. But also, um, you know, I think it's useful to, to think about it's it's fine to think of yourself as privileged, lucky, mm-hmm. blessed, or whatever other terminology you want to use, but mm-hmm. it's always it you're always in danger of being very arrogant if you are ascribing that to other people. So it's one yes. thing for me to say I'm very lucky to have to be the person I am, have the life that I have, but to mm-hmm. tell somebody else that they're lucky that just doesn't sit well with me. In most cases, you know, there are some outlier cases, but to yeah. come to the back to the title of your book, well, you don't know what demons people are struggling with. Yes. Unless you're inside the skin of that person, you don't actually know what they're going through. Yeah. And so you shouldn't pass this kind of judgment of, oh, you are so lucky or so privileged. It is, and it is a judgment. It is a judgment. It's one thing to to sort of remind people of when they're sort of caught in their, you know, whatever it is to remind them. It's like, you know, you have, you have, you know, things going well for you. Like, mm-hmm. it's not all doom and gloom and sort of, to, you know, we all need to sort of be, 
you know, sort of playfully slapped or, you know, just like, hey, you know what? Life is not all that bad. You know, you have an opportunity. This is going for you. You're not a complete loser. You know, that is very helpful, but that's different to your point of you should be happy. What do you have to complain about? And sort of diminishing the very real pain that any life can have. And the other thing is that that I think that what will heal these divisions is precisely what you see in on a small scale in your own New York neighborhood with the uh, parents, um, the other parents uh, of children at your daughter's school, working together towards a shared goal. So I don't find it helpful to be, for example, a topic that I've talked about a little bit. I don't find it helpful to be counting up and saying, okay, what proportion of black people are killed by police and what proportion of white people. It's much more helpful to just have a shared goal, which is reducing police violence, for example, and work together. When you have a shared goal, and a shared goal may still impact some people more than others, may benefit your success in that Uh goal, might benefit some people more than others. Uh So some people might be more motivated to work towards that goal than others. That's fine. So it doesn't mean you have to have a 50, you have to have like an equal balance of every type of person. Sure. Maybe more women are working on this. Maybe more men are working on that. Mm-hmm. But, um, but nevertheless, it's it can be in principle a shared goal. Anyone who shares this goal can come and join us and are welcome. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I'm I'm aware that I've, I've taken up a lot of your time. And oh, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm having a ball. I've been wanting to talk <laughs> to you for so long. I mean, there's so many different things that we haven't touched on that we could, you know, we could, we could talk for um, forever. Yeah, because we haven't even talked about Star Trek. Um, oh, my goodness. The new Picard series, like, you know, your, your evolving relationship with Discovery, because I knew that was, a, you know, a, a slower sale for you. Um, well, I'm I'm planning on uh, having a once a month. Um, I'm I'm planning on making a um, a sci-fi podcast, which is going to be separate from this one. But I will have you on as a guest. <laughs> I love science fiction. Me too. I absolutely love science fiction. Um, it's because you know, and I I, I tell my girlfriend because she doesn't. We like different things, and it's like you have to suspend the the. <laughs> The fantastical elements because these are really just, you know, they're issues or questions that we have today sort of, you know, brought to their, to their extreme of, you know, to really illustrate some of the, 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 the contrast of, of ideas, the conflicts. I mean, I absolutely love it. And, you know, I'm partial. Star Trek is the best version of that ever. <laughs> <laughs> It puts things in perspective, I would say. Yes, it does. That although I'm really interested in race and ethnicity, and I want to write a book on mixed race identities, uh-huh. so I'm, uh-huh. I'm fascinated by people's personal stories, so their individual stories. Yeah. Um, but this kind of, I'm interested in people's individual stories, and I'm interested in kind of humans as a species <laughs> but this yeah. intermediate level of this group of blacks over here do this this group of whites over there do that that i that kind of low resolution um way of looking at things i find very unhelpful and science fiction takes you kind of beyond that 
It's like these yes. are the petty little passing concerns of our society, and I, I think they are passing. I was recently um, interviewed Eric Kaufman, uh, who wrote White Shift, and Kaufman has a lot of demographic, mm-hmm. has done a lot of demographic studies, and he says by um, by 2100, so by the end of this century, more than 95% of people in the West will be mixed race. Mm. And their ancestry will not be immediately obvious or even necessarily known to them in detail. So this whole, you know, the whole race topic will become the way, certainly in the way that we see it, will become obsolete. These so are this our- is something that I'm, I'm very fascinated by because, you know, to your point, they talk about how, um, you know, Japan is, is going to lose double digit percentages of their population over the next 50 to 100 years. And sort of the phasing, there's a, there's a fear that so many people have of their the particular ethnic group that they identify with may cease to exist in the relatively near term. And there's this consternation about it. Um, it's something I'm, I'm very fascinated about mm-hmm. as well. And I would mm-hmm. love to talk to you about that further because I'm like, why do you care? Mm. Yeah. Well, I think I think that I think that we can and probably will uncouple cultures from specific genetics. Mm. And this has already happened in history. Mm-hmm. The people who are living in Britain now who feel very British are not the descendants of the original <laughs> of the original Celts and Picts and yeah. So I think that a Japan in which um, most v- v- people have a much lower proportion of Japanese DNA, mm-hmm. I think that that could still be a Japan that preserved Japanese culture that, in a way that we like. So we have to decouple the idea of race from culture. So one sort of question that I would toss out, playing the devil's advocate, is what's inherently valuable about Japanese culture that we need to keep from going extinct Mm. or what the world could the world function if the Japanese culture, or you can add any culture. I don't want to pick on Mm. the Japanese, but you can add any culture to it. You can add black American culture. What the, you know, what the, how would the world be if it no longer existed, you know? And so um, the inherent value of it, yeah. Well, who knows? And um, who cultures, knows, right? cultures do come and go. I think that diversity in general is a good thing. And I think diversity of culture and of diversity of opinions is much more important than diversity of skin color, for example, I personally feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, if you're, when people imagine Japanese culture disappearing, what they imagine is it's just one less culture is there. Suddenly something right. has gone. But that is not usually the way it works. Mm-hmm. I think that who knows what kind of different cultures will have evolved by then. Exactly. Who knows it's what the world is. Yep, <laughs> it's a continuing is. narrative. We're all just, we're just footnotes, as they say, or... Well, who said that Shakespeare, you know, everyone has their time on the stage and yeah, continuous play. 
Yeah. And so people get caught up on their individual stanzas and it's like, oh, my, you know, I don't get to be an extra anymore. I'm going to give my one line and that's the most important line. It's like, oh, there's thousands of generations worth of lines being added to this narrative. I think it's you really, know? it's really hard to know what, I mean, we know what some of the pressing concerns are likely to be like, for example, environmental concerns but as far as human culture is concerned it's really hard to know what the big issues are going to be because when I was growing up I wouldn't even know have known that social media would be a thing and now it's completely changed our culture so having no crystal ball I I don't know what the big concerns are going to be but I my my guess is race is not going to be one of them that's my that's my guess but I yes. don't know. <laughs> well, well it, it, it all sort of comes back to what I think is the ultimate answer to these questions is death. Mm. I, think, I think our human preoccupation with the end of our life, our individual lives, and the externalities that we've attached to the significance of that, I think that colors everything. Because of all the things in life, the only thing that is certain is that we will die. And I think from there, once we unravel people's feelings about their own personal death, we can then start to use that as a somewhat of a rubric to unravel how they feel about almost anything. Their relationship with their pending death. <laughs> which is sort of the, the first episode of my podcast that I talked about is my fear, not my fear, but my lack of fear of dying. Is there anything that anything that I haven't let you say that you are kind of burning to say as a little last? Um, other than how much I absolutely adore you and how much oh. I absolutely <laughs> just love the fact that I have been invited onto the podcast. I wish oh, we actually were pleasure. sitting together having real tea. I absolutely wish that. That would be lovely. We must make that happen someday. someday. Thank you so much, Rock, for coming on. Okay. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.